This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with sports performance consultant Wayne Goldsmith. He discusses the different environments he's been a part of, including national teams, elite level domestic sides and Olympic teams, some of the key components to elite performance and how this can be enhanced within a programme, as well as the importance of contextualising some of the key psychological characteristics needed for performance environments. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. So Wayne, really appreciate you jumping on. I know it's late your end, but we've had a nice catch up prior. I've got a fellow... um, uh, I don't know if it's heartache or what we call it being a Spurs fan, but yeah, appreciate you jumping on with us. How are things in uh, Australia? How are you? Well, I'm going well, Michael. Thank you for the opportunity to chat tonight. Yeah, look, being a Spurs fan since the day I was born, my grandfather and grandmother were Londoners. They went back to England for a short period of time in the 1960s, and the only gift they brought me back was a Spurs shirt. And more or less, I was told to wear it and never take it off by my, my grandma. And it, it just caught on from there. And I didn't realise the hardship and pain that that one little gift would, would present to me. However, this year, with an Australian manager, I've rekindled my passion for the Spurs. And I've just bought two shirts. They arrived today. And I put one on straight away and wore it around. Of course, my Liverpool-loving son, Hayden, he just hated. He booed and hissed and threw things at me. But that's all part of football. It's it's the joy that you get between fans of rival teams having a bit of fun together. No, for sure. And I'm not sure if it's a gift or a curse, but what I will say is never never dull, which is always pleasing. Um, <laughs> for people that maybe don't know you, haven't come across your work, do you want to give everyone a bit of an overview, I guess, of who you are and what you do from a from a yeah, day-to-day, week-to-week basis? I, I don't know the answer to that question anymore. I, I really don't. Someone asked me today, what do you do for a living? And I, I'm not quite sure some days. it's It started out as to be an exercise scientist who coached. And it's morphed into working with professional teams primarily in rugby league, AFL, working with professional athletes and elite teams in the areas of leadership, culture development, coach mentoring, Working with players on what I would just call applied mental skills, it's morphed into something really strange that I'll get phone calls and people will say, look, we want to talk about coach mentoring or we want to talk about doing a review of our professional team and give us some guidelines on how to improve our communication or leadership next year. I actually don't get anything that I originally trained for. Nobody ever rings up and asks me a physiology question, which is, it's quite bizarre, but I worked in a, I failed high school. I'm very, very ADHD and dyslexic. I don't read very well unless I put a ruler under the screen of the book and uh, under a book or on the screen and struggled high school, failed high school badly in Sydney where I grew up and just had a bunch of easy jobs, just uh, blue collar jobs. I worked packing lawnmowers in the boxes. I worked packing car radiators in the boxes. I did all that. And one day I ran into an old school friend and he said, uh, Wayne, you put on a lot of weight. You used to be a runner at school and played football. And he said, why don't we 
take up a bit of jogging and get in shape. And that led to doing marathon running. That then led to an interest in ultra marathoning. And I met a couple of people on an ultra marathon who were sports scientists. They tell me about what they did at the Australian Institute of Sport in Canberra. I said, wow, how would you do that? And they said, well, you need a university degree. I said, well, I failed high school badly because I was just hopeless at it. And I was trying to sneak into pubs at about 15, which didn't help. And they were good enough to give me a path. And they said, if you go and coach, and I started out coaching athletics and do some coaching courses and then maybe do some tertiary study in maths and science and then apply to get in as a mature age student that you might get into the university in Canberra. So I did that. took me about 18 months. And I got in, did my undergraduate. One way or another, Australia got the host of 2,000 Olympic Games. And they were looking for people to bridge the gap between sports science and applied coaching. And they created these roles in all the Olympic sports called National Manager Sports Science, Sports Medicine. And somehow I scored one of those roles with swimming. And that was a, a huge turning point because what it meant was I had the resources and I had the opportunity to work with all our great coaches and be involved across three Olympic Games. Once that finished, once Sydney was over and done with, I had a little bit of a break and my good friend Bill Sweetenham, who went to England, also involved in swimming, got me to come over and do a little bit of work to help set up a high-performance system there. I came back and did a wonderful project, Michael. It was a project called the Post Host Project where I got the chance to travel to every country that had hosted the Olympic Games since the Second World War and try to discover what they'd done before Olympics that they weren't doing after the Olympics. So, Because we've all seen the post-host phenomenon with every nation except for the United States. Once they host the Olympics, they then go into sporting oblivion for 20 or 30 years. Came back from that, got offered a job with Triathlon Australia as National Performance Manager which led me through to a really successful 2003 World Championships in New Zealand, walked the opening ceremony in Athens in 2004 with the Australian team, won a silver medal with the team there. Well, I didn't do much, but they did. Uh, World Championships that year too. And then I got recruited into rugby and did a couple of years with Eddie Jones when he was coaching the Wallabies for the first time, which was a great experience. We could do an hour just on Eddie's story sometimes, but a, a remarkable guy. Then I, I got into uh, consulting and was started consulting with professional AFL teams, rugby league, professional tennis, and the Australian Open involved with that for about eight years and continued just to work and grow. And it just morphed, as I said, it morphed into something which is hard to quantify sometimes. I call myself now, if anyone asks, I say I'm basically a, a performance consultant that I'll come into an organisation, I immerse myself in the organisation, I listen and I watch and I, I go to coach meetings, I go to half-time meetings, I'm out on, out on the field during warm-ups, I'm in the coaching box, I get right into it so I can hear and see everything. And then I say, I think this is the problem that you've got. And it's a bit of an edge in the market because what most people do is they come up with what they think is a product that's going to fit everybody. And they get out and try and sell it. But with elite sport, Formula One cars don't come off a production line. Just as all elite athletes are great because of their uniqueness. I find that a lot of sports science professionals go into clubs and say, oh, I've got this great thing and it's going to make you better. It, it doesn't ever really work that way because you're dealing with a very unique set of individuals and environment, people working together under pressure. 
at high speed. And I've found that the way that works for me is to go in and get a feel for it and listen and understand and build some trust with the players and the coaches and the staff. And then the problems present themselves very easily. And coming up with the solutions is not the difficult part, Michael. There's a great line I like which goes, it's no good coming up with a great solution to the wrong problem. Coming up with a solution is not that difficult. It's then having the drive and the patience and the political skill and the will to implement change in the resistance that inevitably inevitably comes when you try to make changes. Perfect. I mean, there's so much to unpack there. I'm making notes as you're talking. I think if we go right back to the start, um, and we talk about the coaching environment or coaching stuff. What do you define as good coaching? And what, in your opinion, does good coaching look like? It's a good question. The definition that I came up with for coaching years ago is coaching is the art of inspiring change through emotional connection. So what differentiates a coach from a trainer? Well, a trainer's really good at writing workouts, really good at yelling, inspiring slogans from entertaining American speakers. And they're good at understanding exercise physiology. That's their skill. But but what are we, what's a coach? Well, in the end, coaching is change. That's If you had to say what a coach is, do so, you know, you go to a financial coach, why? To change something about your finances. You go to a business coach, why? Change something about your business. You go to a relationship coach when your wife says, maybe we should see other people. Uh, but in coaching is about changing behavior, same as leadership. The end product of leadership is changing behaviors. And the best leaders, the best coaches are able to subtly and genuinely and authentically connect with the hearts and minds of other human beings and inspire them to do remarkable things or to realize their potential, whatever the goal may be. So the working definition I've got is that your coaches we inspire change through it's a, and it's an art form that I, I believe because not everybody can do it. Everybody can learn to be a trainer and to be a program writer. Not everybody can coach and change the hearts and minds of, of kids. And it's, there's got to be an emotional connection to it. And when I do coaching workshops, I often say, close your eyes, take a big breath, think about the best coach you've known or the best teacher. What is it about them? that brings them to mind at this moment in time. It'll always be, they really cared about me. Geez, they made a They were so interested in me. They believed in me. So much of what we do is an emotional, as coaches. It's about building an emotional connection and building a relationship with athletes and helping them to be all that they choose to be. So when it comes to good coaching, I look for that. Are they making a difference? Are the athletes engaged? A uh, definition of engagement that I use is, Someone's engaged when they give you more than could reasonably be expected. So if I go to a training session and the coach says, I want to do 10, and the athletes do 10, the coach says, I want you to be there at 9 a.m. and they're all there at 9, I'm looking for a coach who's inspired the athletes to get their 15 minutes early, work on their own skills because they want to and they love being in that environment. Or the coach says 10, I'm looking for the athletes who choose to do 11 because they want to be there and they want to take responsibility and ownership for being the best they can be because the coach has inspired them to do that. So the longer I'm in it, when you walk into an environment, 
I'm looking for the behaviours of the athletes, which to me is a reflection of the coach and the coaching that's gone on. The, the phrase I use is by the coach, know the athlete. If you get to know the behaviours of the athletes, you've got a pretty good insight into what the coach has been doing and not doing. I, re I really like what you said there um, around if you close your eyes and imagine a person and a lot of the words you used, a lot of the phrases, it's it discussing how they made you feel rather than what they taught you. So you're saying, you know, they really believed in me or they really, you know, cared, things like that. It's actually a feeling. And I'm a big believer in this. I think that actually people will remember how you made them feel more than what you actually told them. And there's, a, I guess, an argument to be saying if that's a, a good or bad thing. But in my opinion, I think if you've managed to have that connection with individuals, it probably shows you're able to impart some knowledge on them along the way. But actually what you've done is probably given them empowerment, curiosity, all those skills to want to be in an environment and want to develop and want to improve, which I, I think is yeah, a necessity in terms of good coaching, ultimately. Absolutely. Um, so when we're looking at it from um, developing those skills, because obviously they're soft skills, they're, they're things that are particularly challenging to, I guess, have a clipboard and say, right, yeah, you're capable of this, you're not capable of that, or you acted really well this play, or you didn't. How, um, how do people learn and develop those skills? How can practitioners, I guess, be really present and active and trying to develop them to make themselves better coaches in that space? Yeah, I, a lot of it comes down to ripping down the way that we've trained and developed coaches since the 1980s. And without boring the listeners, historically in the 1970s, there wasn't a lot of coach education outside of probably Eastern Europe. 1980s, Canada initially, and then places like Australia and then England and New Zealand and other parts of the world said, this coaching is a pretty good thing. What we need is a coach education system to take coaches from relatively unskilled to being successful at elite level. And the model that they chose to use was a system largely based on sports science. So what we did in the early days, we certainly said, right, level one coach, beginner coach, beginner football coach, they're going to come in and do exercise physiology, biomechanics, skill acquisition, periodization, sports psychology. It sounded right at the time because... Most of those things have got an element of real. They're measurable. I can measure heart rate. I can look at joint angles. I can run seminars. I can teach skills. Most of those things are real. And so as a result, the dominant ideology of the way we've taught coaches since the 1980s, think about how long ago that was, that disco was still almost fashionable at the stage. And Spurs had probably actually been competitive back then. I don't know. But... But that's that was and that philosophy still predominantly around the world, not everywhere, but in a lot of places around the world. Level one, basic sports science, level two, advanced sports science, level three, really advanced sports science. But think about coaching for a minute. And 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 you've probably done it, we've all done it. Get a bunch of people in a room and say, We're gonna brainstorm coaching. What's coaching? And they'll go, uh, it's communication, it's empathy, it's connection. It's engagement, it's passion, it's technical knowledge, it's a love of what we're doing, it's energy, it's enthusiasm. Nobody says VO2 max. 
Nobody says capillarization of skeletal muscle. No one says Yerkes Dodsey's inverted U hypothesis. That stuff is there, but it, it, the, the, the guts of coaching is the connection between two human beings. That's what it's, it's all about. And the reason why we just haven't seen quality coaching as much as we should have seen it around the world is that most of it is based around hard physiological, biomechanical, hard data-driven, observable, measurable, you know, and, and that's that's a difficult thing to change because as human beings, we're wired to see, to measure, to count, to see. Anything we can see is real. What we're talking about as a coach, we're living in the world of commitment, dedication, passion, confidence. We're living in this ethereal that's harder to see, more difficult to measure, but just as or even more important than the other things. So, as, as you know, a lot of coaches, when they start out, they're what coaches because all they want to do is what to do, what drills, what skills, what workouts, what training sessions. When you're in it for a little bit longer, you become a how coach. You go, well, it's not so much about what drills I'm doing. It's about how they do it, at the speed they do it. Can they do it when they're fatigued? Can they do it under pressure? It's how they do it that's a difference. When you get to advanced level coaching, it becomes about, well, why do they do it? Why do they have to do it that way? Just because everyone in our sport always does that passing drill and that kicking drill at that stage, why does it have to be like that? There's other ways of doing it, and you start to get into creativity and innovation. But 99% of coaches never progress past what they think the secret to success to be as good as Sir Alex Ferguson is just to get his training book and do the same drills that men you were doing during that golden period under his leadership. And as you and I know, that's if that's all it was, anyone who bought a recipe book would be on MasterChef. There's a lot more subtlety into how we help athletes be all that they can be. But that's something I've been pushing and thinking about for a long time. How do you coach commitment? How do you coach motivation? How do you coach uh, resilience. How do you coach those things that are critically important? It's difficult, and you can get constant arguing about how do I coach speed. Well, gee, we've known that for a hundred years. How do I coach endurance? Been I read a, a swimming book once from 1898 on how to improve wind, which is how they referred to endurance at that stage. We've known that stuff for a long time, and I can see it. I can measure. I can count it. That's why we're stuck. Largely, we're still stuck in the training methodologies, programs, and the things that we can see and measure. Okay, so I guess there's two questions off, off the back of that and order these whichever way you want. The first one would be, have you got a really good examples of someone who has been able to work around like a psychological piece to great effect? So your resilience, your courage, your um, whatever it might be. And yeah, what, what does that look like? And the second one, if you were to rejig the... Um, I guess, coaching qualifications or the, the structure of them, how would you do it in, in your way so it looked like best practice so we give people the opportunity to develop the the hows and the whys rather than the what? Yeah, the first part of the, the question is an interesting one. I think, first of all, you've got to decide what those things look like. And what I've tried to do, and certainly I've got stuff all over the internet about this. So a couple of stories I like to tell people is I was on deck with a 
elite swimming coach called David Marsh, an American swimming coach. And the Americans were all in the pool training. It was uh, Lochte and Missy Franklin and Phelps and uh, Katie Ledecky. They were all in the water doing training. And I got asked to go in and hang out for a little while. And David and I were talking while the swimmers in the water. And I said, hey, Marsha, I've got a question for you. Typical Australian thing. We put a Y at the end of everything. That I've got a question for you. What's the number one characteristic of a successful athlete? And he said, commitment. And I said, oh, I agree with you. Why is it commitment? I asked Marsha. And he said, well, because... If an athlete is truly committed, like anyone, it takes what it takes. There's no excuses. Whether you have a good day, a bad day, it's raining, it doesn't matter. You get up and you go because you're committed to being successful. And I said, well, I agree. The problem we've got, David, is I can measure how fast this kid is. I can measure the stroke mechanics. I can count the number of strokes. I can see that. But I can't measure commitment. And if I don't, if I can't see it and I can't measure it, how do I coach it? When I stand up in front of a group of other coaches and say, commitment's really important, what's the next slide that goes up? Unless I can define it, and then we can talk about how to coach it. So David Mars says, he said, I always believe that a committed athlete, when you present them with a choice, they will make the decision, they will choose that if you give them the choice between doing things the easy way or the hard way, they will choose the hard way, or you could say the right way. And I stood there and went, it can't be that simple, but it is. And what I talk to coaches about now, Michael, is I say, the number one skill you got to teach an athlete is the power of choice. You teach them that it's the choices that they make that determine their success. So they listen to us. They see the workouts and the training sessions and the drills and the skill practices we give them. But ultimately, it's the choices that they make and the responsibility that they take that determine their success. So, I mean, I know when I visited 2019, I went to Old Trafford and I got a free ticket. Everybody knows everybody in this business. And I sat next to one of Sir Alex's recruiters, a Scottish guy, and we were talking about some of the great players that had come through Manchester United during that period. And I asked him questions about Ronaldo coming through the first time and so on. The pattern was the same as I hear with great AFL teams with the All Blacks, when I've gone over and been working in New Zealand, the pattern is exactly the same, that they choose to do more than is expected, that they choose to do extra, that they choose to get there early, that they choose to put more effort and more intensity in it. It's a choice game. So what I talk to coaches now is I say, I talk to them, so in this case, I tell them the commitment story. I talk about the easy way, hard way, or the easy way, right way model of commitment. And then I say, your art as a coach now, if you believe that that's what commitment is, and I think it's a long way towards a, a great definition, what you need to do now is, one, teach them the difference between the easy way and the right way, and then show them how to make the decision and choose to do things that way all the time because it's a cumulative effect of making the choice to do things the right way that makes all the difference. And... So you run into little gems like that, which is a combination of an outstanding coach getting amazing results with a multiple Olympic gold medal winner, in that case, a guy called Ryan Lochte, who says, this is what it is to me. And I look at it and go, that's the simplicity of that 
is so beautiful. I can now coach that in my coach education programs. I can teach that to other coaches. Yeah. And I, what I like about that is the simplicity side that you just discussed there. And actually, if we were to flip, I guess, coach education on its head and say, actually, we're going to focus on the mental skills that we think are, are probably more valuable when you get to the top end, because all these mental skills allows them to then develop their athletic side. I guess it's the easiness of the definition is what you're looking for, right? So the resilient side, what does that actually look like in your context? So for a swimmer, what is resilience compared to a rugby league player compared to a soccer player? And it's maybe coaches coming up with a definition that can be easily explained and then delivered to their players so they understand resilience in this context means this for us as a group or you as an individual yeah yeah absolutely i i wrote this i did a, a tweet about this the other day that you're exactly right and, and i've been in my by my past life i was the head of sports science sports medicine and research for swimming australia triathlon australia and rugby australian rugby so i'm comfortable around sports science so when i, I talk about sports science I'm not anti-sports science in any stretch. I think at the right time and the right place with committed elite athletes, it, it's the defining difference quite often in in terms of success. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about coaches developing young athletes and so on. And one of the things I, I encourage coaches to is when they say something like resilience is a good one, you raise mental toughness. What are they talking about? Is mental toughness getting up and hitting someone aggressively? Well, no, it's not really. But what's mental toughness to you as a coach? Because if you know what you believe it is, then you can coach it. I often say to coaches, if you can't coach it, don't say it. Don't stand up in front of a bunch of players and say, you're all mentally weak. You're not mentally tough enough. Well, if you can't coach them to be more mentally tough, don't say it. It's like saying to a a goalkeeper, you can't get goals, but I'm going to show you how to move your feet, how to move to the ball, how to move whatever it is. If you can't coach it, don't say it. If you can't say so you stand up in front of a group of players, you're all lazy and you're not committed enough. Well, if you can't coach commitment, don't say it because they're looking for you to then show them guidance and leadership to help fix that. So I was working with a professional football team here, an AFL team, and one of the coaches came up to me and said, Wayne, how do we get these blokes mentally tough? And I said, what What do you think? What's mentally tough? And he said, well, a mentally tough bloke can take a knock, so can get a bit of rough play, and still do his job. So that was his definition. Now, what traditionally happens in that environment, Michael, is people say, well, let's go to the research and let's see what's the definition of mental toughness and resilience, who's done the research on which is usually on non-elite players. Let's let's have a look at all that and then come back with a solution. The coach wasn't asking that. He was saying, this is a problem that I've got. I need a solution to this problem in this context. So we got the coaches together and we said, let's talk about mental toughness in the context of our team right here, right now. What is it? It's the ability that our players can do their job for the team, the job they've trained to do, no matter what happens to them. Well, what does that look like? So the coaches themselves, not me, the coaches came up with the five situations would be when a player gets a knock, when they make a mistake, 
when they miss an opportunity, when they get fatigued, and when they get a bad decision from an official. Because they're the five times when players mentally go, oh, and they're carrying it. And quite often that, that leads to more errors. So the coaches came up with those five different way, uh, situations where they wanted to see the player continue to do their job for the team. So all we started doing was trapping those moments on our analysis software and showing the players what they did, what their behaviour was after one of those things happened, which gave us an opportunity to open the discussion and take them through how to fix it. So you can make these ethereal soft skills you can make them real, but the answers are not generally going to be in peer-reviewed research. They're not necessarily going to be in things that people have done. Quite often, you've got to figure it out as a coach on what what am I actually trying to do? As I said to you earlier, no good coming up with a great solution to the wrong problem. If a coach is saying they've got issues with resilience and you hand them a research paper on how mental toughness had been evaluated in Harvard University in the 1970s, you're not helping them because that's not what they asked. And I found that, and a lot of coaches know this, a lot of coaches intuitively, experientially, they've figured a lot of this stuff out. It's just helping them then to maybe show them how they can take that and use it effectively even in their training programs. I say to sports scientists, never make the mistake of walking in and telling a coach what to do. If the coach has been doing it for 20 years, they've got two PhDs in coaching because they've done hundreds and hundreds of hours of study, observation, feedback, analysis. They're lying in bed at night and instead of going to sleep, they're thinking about plays the next day. Never miss, never underestimate a really experienced coach and their level of knowledge. But go and work with them and you can make a hell of a difference. And just listen to you talk there, I'm, I'm think is a really nice um like example of this and we talk about Tottenham Tottenham's mental toughness might be being under the pressure of actually winning the trophy that might be what it is whereas for Man City that isn't mentally tough that for them it might be being hunted by every club yeah. in the UK and call. Europe and actually if you just go oh it's mental toughness it's such a context-specific um, challenge that are going to be faced. How can we support them? Because they're two opposite ends of the spectrum, but ultimately they probably align to that generic topic. And it's down to, I guess, the people within that context environment to go, how do we actually help them get over this hump or get prepared for games that might not be that interesting? And the skills and techniques <laughs> you use at that point would be very different. Yeah, I have this chat a lot with academics, Michael, that, they they might see a problem, what they perceive to be a problem in a football team, pro football team. So they approach the club and they say, we've just done all this research on resilience or whatever it might be. And they come in and they present it. And quite often the coaches go, right, let's do that. Now, there's multiple issues there that quite often the research isn't specific to that group of players. In the end, players listen to three people each other, their partners, and the coach is going to select them or not select them. They don't generally listen to external experts, no matter what qualifications they've got. So a lot of football teams make mistakes of going for who's got the most qualifications, who's done the most research, that's the person we want. 
you know, not necessarily that during COVID, a story I like to tell, during COVID, I was working with a rugby league team here in the NRL. So, you know, professional level and, and great athletes. And what we had to do during COVID was you had to turn up with a mask on, wash your hands, do a test, wait 15 minutes for the, the response in front of the medical team. And in that time, you'd sit in a, a relatively small room with your masks on waiting for your COVID test results. And if you were positive, you home straight away. If you were okay, you went in and you, you trained and, and that was the best that everybody could do at that time. One day I'm sitting there and the halfback from the team says, Wayne, have you got a minute? I said, yeah, I've got 10 minutes. I'm waiting for my test. He said, I've got a question for you. He said, when we have a try scored against us, what do I tell the players to get them to move on? Because I don't know what to say to them behind the the line while the, the kicker's waiting to have a shot. And we've been scored against. And he said, so, and I said, well, what do they say? What sort of things are they saying now? I said, oh, well, they blame the guy who made the mistake. And the the captain says, let's do this and let's do this. So, you know, who's we, who's let's as a group doesn't really mean anything. He said, what do we do? And, and I'd just come from working with the Australian women's water polo team in a, a camp before the Tokyo Olympics. And we'd have the same problem. And I said, well, what the girls do when a goal's scored against them, they ask a really simple question. What are you going to do now? And they go around to each other because what it does, it gets their mind out of where they were into where they are. And where all they'll say, where are you going to go now? Where are you going to stand next? Or in the pool, where are you going to go to? And he said, oh, that's great. I can use that. That's fantastic. So the next game, when we got some tries scored against us, and you could see him going around, eyeball to eyeball, with four or five of the key players, what are you going to do now? What's next? Where do you have to go right now? And it changed everything. It was so powerful. Didn't do a lecture. Didn't do a workshop. Didn't do PowerPoints. It was a one-on-one -on -one conversation for about two minutes with COVID masks on at the right moment. And I think coaches underestimate, I'm doing a session on the weekend at a, with a group and I call it 10-second coaching, is that I think where coaching's heading is no long meetings, no team meetings, all that stuff, they're, they're because particularly the young players coming through, they don't want, they want to sit there for half an hour listening to people talking about ways of playing or things they should do. Their whole world is on a phone for 10 seconds and sharing it to their mates while they're doing something else, while they're going on YouTube. They don't respond to long, dull, boring, tedious information sessions. So I'm talking to coaches now about 10-second coaching. Those moments when you're walking past each other and, and you say, you got a second? I, I looked at the video last night. I think when you, know, when you come off your left, to duck in there, I think you've got an opportunity to put the ball in the middle to so-and-so. Oh, that's a good idea. I haven't thought about that, coach. What about we practice that later? Good idea. That's coaching. That, I think we're in 10-second coaching world now. where, But it's the cumulative effect of hundreds and hundreds of 10-second coaching opportunities over a season that makes the whole place hum. And what I'm, I'm certainly talking to coaches now more and more, that's where I think we're heading and that's where we are really, is to change our mindset from about, you know, rigid 
orderly, data-driven, all that sort of stuff is is there. But in terms of coaching, it's those wonderful moments and opportunities to connect with another human being and maybe change their life. As I was lucky enough to have a, a chance to talk to that that young player with the COVID masks. So coaching's changed a lot, and I think we've all got to be aware of the different ways players want us to communicate with them. And I think there's an argument to be said. We talk about individualising. That's actually a really nice way of individualising for each player. If you have those 10-second bits, rather than it being a massive team meeting or separate team meetings, that is individualising. If you have one of them or a staff member of yours has one of them with someone throughout a day, you're giving them time and purpose and, and specific techniques. I think what this does allow us to do is quite a nice segue um, towards, I guess, the, the transition in in coaching and players and what that looks like. So um, if I'm going to use a really easy example from my perspective. If you look at the England cricket team um, of late, who under Brendan McCullen have played this brand of cricket and everyone seems really on board with the extravagance of it and, and the way they want to play. And then I compare that to Justin Langer when he was in charge of the Aussies and, you know, the probably knuckle down and grit and grind. In my head, at least, they're kind of the polar opposites of one another in terms of the perception from media, perception from the outside uh, and whatnot. How, when both have success or to a certain levels of success, um, do you stop? I guess people going too far down either path and actually get them to focus on what's right for their group at this moment in time, because there's nothing wrong to say that the Langer approach might not be beneficial for your group, but equally the Brendan McCullum might. So how do you get people rather than cotton onto a fad of a way of playing of assessing what is in front of them with their group that they're trying to work with? Yeah, there's, a, there's some big cultural questions there. The most common piece of consulting I do is to get invited in by a team to help them define or redefine their culture. Culture in just in everywhere, culture is what you do. That's it's it's really simple. People get carried away about and and wax lyrical about what our culture is and the emotion and our past and our history, but in the end, culture is what you do. And what I do with teams when I go into work with them and they're talking about changing our game or changing the way we play or building our playing style, I say to the coach, close your eyes and take a few deep breaths and relax. I want you to see a vision of what this looks like in two years, three years, wherever it is that you're transitioning and building the team. They call a vision a vision because you can see it. And the real art of a great coach is they walk in and see a group of players, they make some observations and they go, I can see this team in European Championships in 2027 playing a dynamic forward press, you know, with white shirts on, of course, but a dynamic forward pressing game and we'll be up against Barcelona FC. It's going to, it, the clearer a coach or a manager has a, of their vision, then as a species, us all being storytellers, the art of a great manager is to then tell the story of the future 
with the same clarity and detail as they can tell the story of the past. And it's the, the coaches and managers have got that ability not to just say, you know, we're going to, we're going to play an attacking game and we're going to have forward press and we're going to be really skillful. Well, it means nothing really. But if I say to you, guys, I want to share my vision. I go back to Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs did this wonderful, it's on YouTube. Steve Jobs did this wonderful thing when he, he talked initially about the iPhone. And he could have come out and he said, I've got a phone. It's bloody good. We've done a lot of research and we get $500 for it. That's all true. He, but he came out and he said, I see a day when people around the world are connected by this product. And I see a time when people who care about each other, where people who love each other around the world are united by this phone. Same message, but the emotion, the clarity, the mental pictures, the storytelling. You, you look at the Apple converts and zealots in the, in the audience, you've just lost your Apple sponsorship, but you, you look at them, that's the art of a great leader. And so when I see coaches and managers have gone down that path, they've got to have a clear vision about what they're trying to achieve so they can then sell that. And by what we started out with, connect, engage, inspire them to see the same thing, the same clarity and detail. That's really the art of what we do. So when I see a team developing a playing style, the only way it really sticks is when the players in that team have bought into the vision that the coach and the players have developed together. And it's the strength of that vision. And we're in the belief game. We sell belief as coaches, belief in ourselves, belief in our way, our methods, belief in athletes believing in themselves. We're in the belief game. We're selling belief. If I stand up in front of a group of players and say, we're going to be dynamic and attacking, and where's the belief in that? It's me pounding them on the head, trying to force. You can't force belief. You can't make someone a Catholic. You can't make someone a Buddhist. You can't make them support Liverpool. You can't force belief. Belief comes from a relationship where trust begins, trust evolves, and then you go, man, I can see that vision. I trust this coach, this team, to take us towards that vision that I can see. So the dynamics of building a culture seems like common sense, but a lot of people get it wrong because they don't have a clarity of vision. They don't see it to the absolute detail that they can tell a story from the past and then they don't sell belief in the vision. If you look around the world of politics that are in the United States, if just about anywhere, that you're not dealing with logic, you're not dealing with advertising, you're dealing with belief. You're dealing with people who believe this guy's wrong, that guy's completely wrong. This this faction's right, that faction's... Com we, we, we're all dealing with one way or another, an element of belief in what's happening. The good managers, after they've got their great vision, they're able to sell a, a level of belief which is unbreakable. And that's what brings teams together, that they believe in where they're going, who they are, and they know who they are. Um, and how do, you do that I've... without? how do you do that without providing a ceiling? So I look at someone like Ange at the moment, um, and he could easily go in and go, you know, I have a belief that 
these players are capable of, you know, this high pressing football that I want to play. He could go into the players and say, I think we should be top six or top four. And all of them are, all of a sudden that either becomes a weight of pressure or a ceiling of where they should be, rather than actually going, let's work towards this process and work work through this process of how we want to do things and what we want to be as a, as a group of players and staff and seeing where that takes us. So how, how do you, I guess, yeah, manage that without like either lowering expectations or um, putting the ceiling on expectations around the group? Yeah, really good question. The way that I usually attack that is I help teams clarify their values. Everyone's got values. The most common value when I work with football teams anywhere in the world is honesty. They all say, yeah, we're about honesty. The problem with that is, like we talked about earlier with commitment, if I can't see it, it's not real. I can see strength and I can see power, but I can't see honesty. So some of the exercises that I do when I work with professional teams is to help them understand what honesty looks like. So typically with a football team, you want to see their values come to life. I call it actually my living values session. When I, I work with footy teams, we go through a process of saying, what are your values? And most of them already got values that have been set for a long time. So typically it's honesty, sincerity, humility, courage, discipline, professionalism, mateship, fun, hard work, resilience, the same list of 20 words around the world everywhere. And uh, I, I've never really... I, one team caught me once by ruthless was a word that came out of nowhere, which was, but it was very characteristic of where they were in the western suburbs of Melbourne and their reputation was very tough and hard and working class, so it fit for them. The, the real question then is what I want to do is if I've got a set of values that's truly representative of us as a group, what does that look like in, if it's football, on-field training, off-field training, game day, and social situations. So quite often teams will say, Wayne, we're, we want to be honest. We're really, really honest. We're, we're, we want to be known for honesty. I say, you show me what honesty looks like in the gym. What does honesty look like during a push-up? What does honesty look like on training on a Tuesday afternoon? What does it look like on game day? And what does it look like in the pub at 2 o'clock in the morning on Sunday after a big win? You've got to show me the behaviours that bring your values to life. Why? Because I can see behaviours, I can coach behaviours, I can measure behaviours. Individual players can be responsible for their own behaviours and as a team, I can keep them accountable to those behaviours. So the big, not mistake, the, the lack of understanding that a lot of football teams, even very successful and well-funded professional football teams make is they come up with a set of values and they go, well, that's what we're about. Well, no, it's not. Culture is what you do. And if you don't connect your values to actual observable behaviours, nothing changes. And as one of our very famous swimming coaches here, Laurie Lawrence says, if nothing changes, nothing changes. And I find that's the step. So that if you're living your values and you're living those behaviours in all you do all the time, Success is never inevitable. Uh, old coaching friend of mine says, there's nothing we can do to guarantee success. Our job is to increase the likelihood of success. And if you're living your values in all you do, when you've got players choosing to take responsibility, 
are living the values and other players keeping them accountable to living those values, you don't need to set ceilings. So that's another way of doing it. Now, you might have a vision, but you might keep it to yourself. And as a coach, you've got that. You're lying in bed at night and you can see it's burning into your brain about where you're going. But you might achieve that by getting the team to live their values. And it, it doesn't have to be complicated stuff, Michael. When I was working with a rugby league team in Sydney uh, about 10 years ago, and they wanted one of their values was selfless. And one of the players came up with an idea. He said, oh, I've learned this. He said, I saw this on TV. He said, when we train and the drinks come out on the field for us to go and have a drinks break, we should do a thing called pass it back. So the first player over to the drinks trolley passes it back. Who passes it back? Because usually the last players to get to the drinks are the ones who are struggling the most. They need the drinks the most. So he said, well, let's introduce a behaviour for bringing our selflessness to life of passing the drinks back. And it was so simple. It was driven by the players. It was immediately observable. The player who got the water bottle was responsible for the behaviour of passing it back. And if you didn't do it, the other members of the team would keep you accountable to it. So a lot of what I do is showing teams how to bring their values to life. So they go from being slogans on T-shirts and on the wall into actual observable behaviours. And uh, on, a, on another podcast that I listened to you um listen to you on uh, one of the things you discussed was around or, or you mentioned briefly was around how people are often a product of their place in terms of like <laughs> culturally of where you are so you know I think of an Aussie I think of someone that's going to battle to the end is going to be you know aggressive because I think of you know McGrath and the War Brothers coming over here and playing cricket and then the rugby and stuff and you know I think of New Zealand in a particular way or the US and whatnot so when you're looking at, I guess, international teams or teams that have multiple nationalities, but equally, I think whilst we have those stereotypes, there'll be individuals within those countries that are boundary testers. How do you go around, um, I guess, encouraging people to incorporate values that might not be core or inherent to them? So it might be things that they don't feel like in their culture is overly important or things that they've never really been placed emphasis on growing up so you know for me if I've had that for 22 years as an individual in my culture I would find that far more important than if I've just moved from Madagascar and I've come across to your culture and I've never found that important but now all of a sudden I have to so how do you go around I guess uh, managing that merging of ideas and thoughts and core values etc I think now, look, it's a it's a wonderful question, and I've, I've been lucky enough to work with a lot of different national teams. The The philosophy that I promote is called you play like your place. And in simplest terms, if we talk football, Brazilian kids don't go to football training and the coach says, I'm going to show you how to play Brazilian football. They teach them how to pass and kick and defend. They do it the way they do because they're Brazilians, because their food, their culture, their language, their faith, everything about them is Brazilian. And there's a there's there's an attitude and a belief and a way of doing things in everything they do 24. They're a football player four hours a week. They're a Brazilian 24-7. Same in Germany. I'm sure that you don't go to a to 
uh, training as a 10-year-old German player and they say, we're going to show you how to train and play exactly like Germans. They they show them how to play football. They play it their way because they're Germans. Because, and, and so I, when I work with national teams or any teams, they say, you've got to spend a moment figuring out who you are first. It's like working with coaches and we ask them, why do you coach? That's our first question right at the start because once they understand why they coach, their coaching philosophy grows from that. Once they understand their motivation, it, it grows. They've got a coaching philosophy. Once they understand why they're coaching, everything's pretty easy and their path is relatively simple. Most coaches never go through the process of asking, why do I coach? But with teams, the 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 common thing that I see, say, in the Canterbury Crusaders, in, who's a, a dominant super rugby team here, who continually just from a very small province of New Zealand are, are the best provincial rugby team I've ever seen. The dominant teams in AFL and rugby league in, in so many other codes. The things that I see in common is they know who they are. There's a great line when I, I got a chance to do some work with the Crusaders a couple of years ago. And one of the old Crusaders players, saying rugby, he said, we recruit Crusaders. We don't recruit players and turn them into Crusaders. And it was beautiful because he said, we know what it looks like to be a Crusader. We know what it means. We know what our values are. We know what makes us successful. And we go looking for Crusaders and we recruit them. We don't go looking for great players and assume we can turn them into Crusaders. And that sense of identity, of knowing who they are and what they stand for is so important because I find the majority of clubs don't. And there's a great line that says, if you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. Every time a new manager comes over, you go that way, you go that way, you go. The smart ones go, but who are we really? What do we stand for in 100 years of our history? What, are, what do we stand for? Who are we? What's our, what do we actually, and then we look for players who strengthen or sustain that culture, and then we work really hard. Now, I had the same conversation with that Scottish guy uh, when I was sitting at Old Trafford, I think we're playing Cardiff in the last game of that season. And I think Menu went down. And we were talking about football. And I said, why were you guys so successful? And I'm sure that your listeners would know this a thousand times better than me. But I said, why was Menu so successful? And he said, well, we went looking for Menu players and we recruited them. And it was same thing as the Crusaders. The same line. And then team that the rugby league team I follow in Australia called the Canterbury Bulldogs, who were once really good, but are sort of the Spurs equivalent. Now maybe I've got this this tragic thing where I follow hard luck stories. But they had a golden period where they won, they were in grand final 79, they won 80, 81, 82. They were in grand final 83, 84. They won again, I think, 85, 88. They went through this golden period about 15 years of sustained success in a system with a salary cap, which is which is unusual. A guy that was in that era, a guy called Steve Fakes, may he rest in peace, he, he, we lost him to a, uh, a stroke uh, at way, way too young an age. But I asked Fakesy, I said, why were we so good during that? He said, well, we knew what we stood for when we recruited Bulldogs. And I, again, same message, Michael. And you nut that down into... You gotta know who you are, what that looks like, what it looks like to be in that nation, or be you've got to get a clear understanding of who you are. You recruit people who either sustain that or make it better, and you work harder than anybody else ever dreamed possible. 
because if you know who you are and you've got the right people who also get where you're going and buy into it and you work harder than anyone else is prepared to, your chances of winning are a lot higher. And where I go into clubs that are failing, they don't get that. Every time a new manager comes in, they change their identity. They change their values. They bring in players from all around the place who've got a whole range. As you've got a great line boy, you bring in players from all over the place and just let them hope it's all going to come together by taking them away for a retreat and have a motivational speaker come in. Never work. just doesn't work. Everywhere that's been successful, they grow success and they build success on those foundations of knowing who they are. I mean, this is such simple stuff. But what do they say about common sense? It's not that common. I'm, I'm surprised that more teams don't know this because it really is the cornerstone of, of being successful. And I think that is a really nice sentiment to finish on. So I have one last question for you, which is if I were to speak to the the coaches that you work with um, or the organizations, organizations you've been into or the athletes that you, you've helped and uh, they were to describe you in three words, how would you hope they described you? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, passionate, without any doubt. I, I love the chance to solve a problem. Which is, it, it's just the way that my brain is wired. Uh, enthusiastic, which is almost the, the, the same. And I'll throw a left one. You know what I'd, I'd like them to know, I'd like them to say, is a word like loving or caring. Because, you know, in the end, when you're working with, with players, if you've got a relationship where you care about me and I really care about you, to the point where that fosters an environment of real trust, and I go, Michael, it's not good enough. You've got to do better. Instead of you going, well, screw you, Wayne. How dare you say that to me? If you if you know I care about you and we trust each other, you're going to go, man, he's saying that because he doesn't want me to fail. He wants me to be successful. So everywhere I go, I try to build trusting relationships by me sharing a lot of myself, probably more than I should sometimes, so that I can get a relationship going because in the end, the people you work for, they pay the bill. But if you care about if you really care about them, to the point where you're doing what you do so they don't fail and you're investing everything you've got so they can realise their potential. It's incredibly satisfying and it's it's a great job to be in. So if they said passionate, enthusiastic, so high energy, which is ask my fiancé about how my mouth starts working before I even open my eyes in the morning. But if, if they said I felt like he really cared about me, that would be the greatest compliment of all. Because I can't think of anyone I've worked for, worked with, certainly not players or coaches, that I haven't liked, that I haven't given everything I could to try and help them be all they could be. So that'd be a that'd be a, an honour to be described in that way. Perfect. I think everyone would agree that's listening that we've heard those three, three things come across during this. So listen, really appreciate your time. I know there's loads more that we could have discussed, so it might be one that we pick up again in. A year or so's time but yeah really appreciate your time and uh, we'll catch up with you soon absolute pleasure
Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.